Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of the State of Venezuela podcast. My name is Rafael, your host as always. And here at the State of Venezuela podcast, we've made it a point to highlight the external actors that have been more than just allies to the dictatorial regime of Nicolas Maduro, but more importantly, crucial keys to the regime's survival. And while Russia has not yet been the single focus of an episode, it was only a matter of time before we arrived at this point, because among the authoritarian allies that Maduro has managed to cling on to, Russia is unquestionably Maduro's loudest and most important lifeline on the world stage today. As the world continues to watch in horror as Russian President Vladimir Putin wages a relentless military invasion of neighboring Ukraine, with civilian casualties numbering in at least the hundreds and over a million people fleeing the country within the span of a week according to UN refugee agency estimates, the international community has widely condemned the invasion and has stood in solidarity with the Ukrainian people, with almost every nation on earth formally voting to condemn Vladimir Putin's aggressive invasion of Ukraine. Now I say almost every nation because a small handful of countries has instead chosen to publicly and proudly rally behind Russia. One of those countries, of course, is Venezuela. You see, Russia is more than just an ally to Venezuela. For decades, under both Hugo Chavez and Nicolas Maduro, Russia has served as an economic and diplomatic lifeline for the country. Venezuela has consistently been one of the few countries in the world to support Russia's aggressive ambitions abroad, as they did when Russia invaded South Ossetia and Abkhazia in Georgia back in 2008, and when it annexed Crimea in 2014. Even now, this follows a visit by the Deputy Prime Minister of Russia to Caracas, where security cooperation agreements were signed by Russia and by Venezuela. Before that visit, the Deputy Foreign Minister of Russia refused to rule out the possibility of enhancing Russia's existing military presence in Venezuela. Now, even though our episode is not focused on Ukraine, understanding the dynamics of Venezuela's relationship with Russia will help you understand the growing challenge that it represents to our hemisphere and to the world at large. And to help us understand Russia's relationship with Venezuela, I'm very happy to be joined in today's episode by Dr. Evan Ellis. Dr. Ellis is a research professor of Latin American studies at the U.S. Army War College Strategic Studies Institute with a focus on the region's relationships with China and other non-Western hemisphere actors, as well as transnational organized crime and populism in the region. He previously served on the state Secretary's policy planning staff with responsibility for Latin America and the Caribbean, as well as international narcotics and law enforcement issues. With over 300 published works on multiple topics related to the issues in the region, he stands out as supremely qualified to speak on Russia's presence in Latin America. So with that, Dr. Ellis, welcome to the State of Venezuela podcast. 
Thank you. It's a pleasure to be part of the program. Now, before we get right into the Russia-Venezuela relationship, I want to start with a general overview of the foundations of Russia's ties to Latin America itself. Because even though Russia doesn't really have a lot in common with the region, with disparities in language and in culture, it's managed to create a very impressive set of partnerships with some countries in the region, even now with those that are seen as friendly to the United States. So what is it that's made Russia so successful in cultivating a presence in Latin America? Well, to understand the Russia's current ties to the region, you have to understand the Cold War context in which uh, Russia engaged uh, largely uh, with Cuba um, and sometimes uh, in, in competition with Cuba in uh, trying to promote uh, its uh, positions uh, in, in Latin America, trying to uh, promote uh, insurgent movements, seeking to overthrow democratic governments. Uh, we could talk about the Sandinistas, the FSLN in Nicaragua, the FMLN in um, in, in El Salvador and, and a range of others. Uh, in, in addition, of course, uh, during the Cold War, uh, Russia became an important supplier of military equipment to a range of, of Latin American states. And uh, with some time, it also uh, built up uh, a series of uh, essentially mutually beneficial trade relationships with uh, countries such as Argentina. In that context, uh, Russia, although uh, Cuba was its key ally for, for many, many years with the collapse of the Soviet Union and uh, the Warsaw Pact in 1993, Russia abruptly withdrew from not only the region, but uh, Cuba, leaving some significant impacts. And it really wasn't until about uh, 2008 uh, as the war in uh, the Crimea I'm sorry, the, war, the civil war in Georgia began to heat up that uh, Russia had an occasion to begin to return uh, to the region. One of the specific uh, contexts for that was that uh, uh, Daniel Ortega, who had previously been um, a, as head of, of Nicaragua, one of Russia's uh, key allies in the region, uh, was uh, jumped out in front and recognized the Russian-backed uh, separatists in the breakaway republics at, at that time of uh, South Ossetia and Abkhazia, causing many in Russia to understand the uh, potential value of some of their uh, previous uh, friends in, in Latin America as they were trying to maneuver um, and get a strategic space in, in their near abroad. And so uh, you know, that was uh, followed by an attempt to, to reconstitute political relationships and economic relationships. Then Russian President uh, Dmitry Medvedev, uh, this is uh, 2008, um, November 2008, went ahead and, and did a tour of the region, talked about uh, a number of different uh, collaborative projects. Almost none of them uh, had funding and passed the Duma and, and really went forward. But it was a bit of a wake-up call. Of course, uh, that was also the time in which you had the Russians seeking to uh, project a, a threat into the hemisphere, largely leveraging those anti-US or at least uh, anti-democratic actors. So uh, you had, for example, in the early stages of the Georgia conflict, uh, Russia then uh, taking advantage of its presence and friendship with Venezuela to uh, send uh, two uh, Tu-160 uh, backfire bombers, nuclear-capable bombers, although didn't carry nuclear weapons, over to Venezuela and later uh, to um, to uh, Nicaragua and, and Cuba, basically to, to fly around the region to remind people that uh, Russia was still capable of projecting a threat into, into the U.S. backyard in Latin America. That was followed, of course, uh, by a four, uh, four-ship uh, naval flotilla uh, led by the, the Russian nuclear-powered uh, cruiser Peter the Great. Uh, and then, of course, um, things really calmed down quite a bit until uh, the uh, next uh, Russian-backed successionist crisis flared up, uh, this time, of course, in the Ukraine, uh, in the Crimea, when, again, 2013-2014, in the context of that crisis, Russia again sent over a Tu-160 backfire bomber, again, uh, you know, talked of uh, various different types of collaboration, especially military, but almost nothing happened. 
Uh, meanwhile, um, of course, uh, Russia did continue to have some other ties in the region. Uh, it's had a various low-level military ties. Um, one of the things is Russia tried to re-engage itself with the region. Uh, the fact that you had so many uh, countries in the region who had Russian military equipment gave Russia a base for maintenance contracts and spares contracts and things like that. And, and also some of the the uh, more senior members of Latin American Armed Forces had um, done training in Russia, so that gave them a bit of, a, of an entry. Uh, indeed, when you talk about just the, the bulk of armed forces, about uh, a quarter, for example, of all uh, transport helicopters, military transport helicopters in the region are um, Russian-made, uh, mostly uh, MI-17s. And so you had these kind of limited bases for Russia to engage in, in the region as it sought to re-engage. It had to do with military parts, a little bit of its nuclear industry with, with Rosatom, um, a little bit of construction with a company called Interal, a little bit of, of mining with companies like uh, Rosoro, among others, um, and, um, and, and to a certain degree, it's petroleum industry. Um, you, some of those were more closely tied to the state than others, and so companies like um, such, such as Rosneft, companies such as Gazprom and TNK and, and Luke Oil, um, although, and those especially became very involved in Venezuela under uh, the, the regime of, of Hugo Chavez. Uh, largely, it was uh, the Russians and, and, and the Chinese who became kind of the two big players as others pulled out. And then, of course, uh, you continuing uh, with, with Nicolas Maduro. So bit by bit, what you found was a um, small number of, of states that were working um, you know, with, with the Russians, largely anti-U.S. states, although you had agricultural relationships uh, with some, for example, Argentina and, and Brazil, which would import Russian fertilizers and which would export um, a certain amount of food stuff to the Russians. Um, and frankly, you had a, a somewhat sporadic basis for intervention. Uh, and that was um, that uh, typically anytime that you had a, a major crisis in Russia's near abroad, it would look to rally its friends to project some sort of counter move into uh, the U.S. near abroad. And so those have really been the key characteristics of Russia's modern reemergence. Again, far more limited than a country like China, for example, that has a great deal of staying power and financial capability and, and things like that. But that base has formed uh, the, the character of, of uh, what Russia is trying to do right now is, again, in the context of the, the current crisis in, in Ukraine, it's trying to send messages to the United States and, and show the world that it uh, it's not alone. So that's that's kind of where we're at with Russia right now in the region. And speaking of China, something that I find really interesting in the differences or the varying degrees of engagement in Latin America between China and Russia is the ends that each one of them seems to want to achieve or the objectives or the means by which they want to achieve those objectives, right? So in a country like Venezuela, for example, Russia has plenty of oil and gas, and those, of course, are Venezuela's main assets. Yet Russia has had no problem in the past nestling itself into Venezuela's oil sector in spite of however many millions of dollars that it will knowingly waste in the process. I read an article by Reuters the other day that described Russia's continued investment in Venezuela's declining oil sector, or at least in the past, as literally pouring money into quicksand. And it seems like it'll do the same in Cuba and in Nicaragua, whereas in the case of China, it seems more content in expanding its Belt and Road Initiative, regardless of the political sentiments of the leader in charge, whether or not they're pro or they're anti-American. Uh, do you think that this sense of anti-Americanism among these more populist regimes has been more of a driver for Russia in this instance to engage with the likes of Cuba, Venezuela, and Nicaragua? 
Well, certainly uh, Russia has very different motivations and uh, very different capabilities than China does, and also very different uh, associated vulnerabilities when it engages with the region. So as you uh, very importantly pointed out, whereas uh, China uh, has a number of, of very economically oriented motivations, it wants uh, to have access to the region's minerals and uh, in, in other commodities. It wants to have access to the region's markets uh, and technologies. Um, and so uh, doing so is not served by projecting itself as a threat and certainly uh, not in a way that would rally the, the U.S. And, and other Western powers against it. And so what you find is that uh, while China certainly um, is happy to do business with uh, leftist populist states and arguably benefits from that, uh, China generally tries to divorce itself from some of the more anti-U.S. Uh, proclamations and, and actions. Uh, indeed, uh, in one of the, the summits uh, with a uh, uh, previous uh, Venezuelan leader, Hugo Chavez, uh, Chavez uh, in Beijing tried to proclaim that uh, the Venezuelan oil would be used for the next hundred years in the service of the Chinese people in a great collaboration uh, in the anti-imperialist struggle. And the Chinese were very quick to respond um, that uh, you know, China's friendship was not directed against any third party. So the irony of uh, Russia's engagement then is on the one side, uh, you do find that Russia's relative resources to provide loans, um, the power of its market and things like that are, are far more limited than those of China are. Indeed, uh, I, as I always like to say, the uh, Latin American business persons do not dream of you know, access to vast Russian markets in, in the same way that they, that they do about China. What is combined with that is the fact that the... Um, the Russians have a relatively more limited set of partners with which they can do business. Um, so again, it's principally been the anti-U.S. actors in, in the region who have been willing to um, engage with Russia, as well as a, a, another subset of essentially economically oriented uh, relationships that we mentioned, Argentina and Brazil, for example. So in that context, because Russia has a lot less to lose, um, you know, Russia you know, isn't as worried about losing access to Latin American markets, as you rightfully pointed out. It's not as worried about losing access to uh, Latin American commodities. Um, what it is interested in doing is, in a relatively cheap way, uh, using its friends, or I should say the um, you know, you know, opponents of the U.S. In, in the region, to project threats at key times or to show that it is not alone. And so the irony is, as you pointed out, Russia is willing and actually has every incentive to do far more provocative things, you know, such as projecting military forces into the region. Uh, so for example, when in 2018, it, it tried to say that it was uh, uh, going to deploy its nuclear capable bombers to a, a small island, La Artia Island, off of the coast of, of Venezuela, something that was absurd, but uh, it was intended to uh, again, grab headlines, um, or again, the deployments of its bombers on various other occasions, or for example, the naval flotilla that we talked about before, or for example, um, you know, when it uh, very publicly uh, uh, came into uh, Venezuela's, uh, uh, one of its uh, principal airports, and uh, started working on um, you know, Russian uh, S-300 air defenses and, and bringing other uh, Russian equipment and, and training uh, in, into the country, including famously the the Wagner Group uh, personnel, the the, the mercenaries, uh, you know, tied with uh, with uh, Russian um, military and, and Russian intelligence. And so, you're absolutely right that um, the irony of the synergy is that Russia doesn't have the resources to keep its friends in power um, in the way that China does through its uh, commodity purchases and, and loans and, and things like that. And yet, Russia benefits from those countries that are kept in power by 
you know, Chinese commerce and, and loans, like, for example, Maduro or, you know, previously Hugo Chavez. On the other hand, China really doesn't want to engage in those threatening ways, and yet China benefits from Russia acting as a threatening actor in the region because that distracts its principal rival, the United States, without China, so to speak, getting its hands dirty or being, you know, being touched by those aggressive Russian actions, much in the same way that China also benefits without necessarily being touched by some of the more worrisome Iranian actions in Venezuela and other parts. So there's an interesting unintended synergy and very, very important differences in the the style and, and motivations and scope of, of those two major actors uh, engaging in the region. You mentioned capabilities, and I wanted to touch on those Russian capabilities with respect to information warfare. With the ongoing Russian invasion of Ukraine, there are very heavy, coordinated attempts by Russia to influence public opinion, going beyond what I think people traditionally understand to be propaganda. We're seeing it with government-run media outlets like Sputnik, Russia Today, which is being heavily criticized right now here in the West, being pulled off of TV stations, pulled from the Apple Store, Google Play, App Store, you name it. But when you watch or listen to their journalists or pundits on there or on social media, it seems like the messaging isn't necessarily pro-Russia, but more so very anti-America, very anti-West. I first picked up on this with their coverage of what's been happening in Syria, where, of course, they have a very large presence supporting the Assad regime, but more so with the coverage of what's been happening in Venezuela, somewhat backing Maduro, but more so suggesting that everything is the fault of the West, using buzzwords nonstop like empire, coup, plot, CIA. So the objective seems really to sell a Russia-driven narrative that, frankly, is inconsistent with reality. They've actually been pretty successful at this. So could you tell us more about Russia's information warfare capabilities? Sure, absolutely. And of course, uh, the term information warfare is relatively new, um, but uh, what Russia does goes back to, uh, for, for many, many years, uh, part of a doctrine, something it was uh, very fascinated with called uh, reflexive control. Uh, you know, thinking about, uh, you know, the role of perceptions and, uh, you know, coming out of the idea of, of use of feedback in, in mechanical control systems. But the Russian reflexive control doctrine is just really very, very focused on how you inject messages, uh, correct messages or incorrect messages to have certain types of, of effects that you desire in, in complex systems. And so what was, it's been interesting is that the Russians do not know Latin America that well, particularly not in, in this generation. Um, the Cubans are much closer to the Latin American people in terms of kind of their understanding of marginalized populations, revolutionary movements, etc. But what you've seen um, in recent years is that uh, technology, which is something that the Russians have gravitated to, so um, not only mainstream media, but also things like uh, you know, social media, and associated uh, vehicles like bots and trolls and, and things like that. Um, the Russians have kind of taken their old reflexive control doctrine. They have integrated it with the knowledge of the regional politics uh, brought by the Cubans and the Venezuelans and, and others. And very importantly, as, as you pointed out, what the Russians try to do um, through reflexive control doctrine is not 
propaganda as, as we think of it. It's not just about making people like the Russians or putting out a message that justifies how they feel you know, about the Russian operation. In many ways, the Russians recognize that you know, that may be too hard or it may be something that people um, are not as disposed to believe. But what the Russians have done very, very effectively is basically stir up trouble. Uh, and so this really predates the invasion and really has been a hallmark of Russian activities in the region in information operations, which it's very different than the way Chinese do things. The Chinese are still kind of in the old mode of put out silence on, on sensitive issues, make people like us, make people accept our, our message. But what the Russians do oftentimes in uh, especially pro-US or democratic states is they create strategic openings by putting out information, uh, oftentimes false information or distorted information that causes people who feel strongly on both sides of an issue to get very politically mobilized, to get upset about these things. Uh, so basically to sow confusion, to um, sow mobilization, to wreak instability, which undermines over the long run uh, democratic systems and indeed that can undermine people's faith in you know, democracy itself, undercutting their rivals such as the, the United States and that democratic order, and only through that opening up a, a place for the Russian system. Now, as you pointed out in terms of the tools, um, this is often misunderstood. So on the one hand, you do have a modern version of the you know, previous generation of you know, kind of clunky tasks and things like that. So the modern version, of course, is uh, Sputnik and in Russia today is the two flagship ones. The Russians have worked very hard, as, as you know, in integrating their um, news services as pseudo credible news services. They're very, you know, they're seen as somewhat serious. Uh, they have have an interesting and entertaining orientation. They work years to uh, get them into mainstream markets and, and, and cable markets, trying to, um, again, make them very glossy um, you know, reporters who speak very well in the, the local languages. And so you, know, you feel like you're looking at a, a very modern media product. And so um, it's really ingrained itself in the mainstream in many different parts of, of Latin America, not only in the print media, but also in terms of, of radio and, and television and, and other things. But in addition to that, um, what you have is, of course, social media. And again, through um, techniques for propagating many, many messages, like we mentioned before, bots and trolls, what you'll have is, is people who you know, work you know, not necessarily Russians themselves, but people who work for the Russians or in campaigns that are designed by the Russians to, um, again, put out reactions to stories or sometimes put out uh, either exaggerated or false things, sometimes using doctored pictures, suggesting, um, you know, an atrocity that occurred someplace or um, you know, that a certain leader may be corrupt, etc. The catch then is to try to um, use that social media to insert those false stories and that narrative into the mainstream media, getting it picked up by as much of the mainstream media as possible, and sometimes actually using their own you know, RT and Sputnik to basically validate a story that they want to play up. And so the relationship between RT and Sputnik um, and the Russian use of, of social media is is complex, um, and you see it now in, in, in the same way that you saw it previously. But the real key is that the Russians aren't trying to so much justify the war in Ukraine, as you pointed out, as they are trying to get people confused and, and upset and really undermine the coherence of the Western response and the faith that people have in, in the West and in, in Latin America. 
And in places like Colombia, this has been a big concern as well, because you have very sensitive uh, elections in Colombia right now, uh, where it appears that a, a former leftist M-19 guerrilla leader, uh, Gustavo Petro, could very well uh, win. And so you don't see the Russians trying to promote Petro so much as to get everybody upset about the other candidates and really re confusion that ideally would open up a space for Petro to come to power, who would then presumably be able to foment a, you know, pro-Cuban, pro-populist, and ultimately, you know, pro-Russian agenda. So the complexity is important to recognize. But yeah, that's that's some of the ways in which you see the Russians using social media in, in the region right now. In essence, it seems like a very sophisticated version of basically what boils down to whataboutism. And I could see how this tactic has been so effective, particularly here in the West, by antagonizing it to no end, by really putting on trial its own track record, while at the same time conveniently shielding Russia from everything that they're doing in Venezuela, in Syria, and especially, of course, in Ukraine at the moment as we speak. There have been actually a handful of journalists from Russia today that have actually resigned from the outlet in response to what Russia's doing, yet conversely, RT is one of the few international channels available for broadcast in Venezuela. So that presents an opportunity for us now to formally pivot to this relationship between Venezuela and Russia, because as I mentioned before, we've spoken about Venezuela's relationship with its other allies at length, but with Russia, there's another deliberately antagonistic, to use the word again, anti-American element. So in your view, what exactly makes Russia's relationship stand out as so unique among Venezuela's remaining allies? Well, as you pointed out, um, from a Russian perspective, it's a little bit different than the classic trajectory because, you know, if you look back at Cuba, you recognize that uh, Russia's re-engagement built on the Cold War relationship it had with Cuba. If you look at uh, Daniel Ortega and the Sandinistas in Nicaragua, you could say that uh, Russia's rebuilding of the relationship in, in 2007-2008 leveraged the you know personal friendship and, and partnership that Russia had with Ortega and the, the FSLN back then. But in Venezuela, uh, essentially, um, the tradition of Venezuela was a relatively pro-West, pro-U.S. government. Um, it hadn't bought virtually any Russian military equipment. Um, it had, its, its armed forces had traditionally been fairly anti-Russian, etc. And so the way in which Venezuela became to be such an important uh, partner of the Russians and, and vice versa is interesting. On the one hand, what you had obviously was a, a leader, Hugo Chavez, who was open to this. And so you go back to 2004 when Chavez is, is a former military man trying to uh, modernize the uh, Venezuelan armed forces using petrodollars. He's blocked from getting spare parts for the uh, F-16s, which are the backbone of the Venezuelan fighter force from their years of, of being with, with the U.S. He um, then turned to the Europeans, but the, the U.S. and Europeans uh, blocked him. And so finally uh, turned to the Russians and discovered the Russians were willing to sell him all kinds of stuff. And at the time, with international oil prices high, he had the cash to pay for it. So from about 2005 on forward, you had what ultimately turned into over 11 billion dollars of sales in which essentially the entire Venezuelan military was recapitalized um, with uh, Russian equipment. Uh, so Sukhoi 30s uh, largely came to replace the old F-16s. Uh, you had uh, various types of armored vehicles, various uh, types of BMPs and BTRs. Uh, you had the purchase of at least 200 uh, T-72 uh, tanks and, um, and a range of, of other equipment and, and missiles and coastal defense systems and, and various things. Uh, now, there were indeed 
problems with that. Um, there are some problems with the quality of the remanufactured equipment and the, the electronics packages and, and things like that. But um, as uh, Chavez was rebuilding the Venezuelan armed forces, the Russian equipment and, and by extension um, working with the Russians became uh, at least one key part, even, even while it was Cuban intelligence that really penetrated the Venezuelan military. But hand in hand with the military piece, the other big block that came into play was Russia as a petroleum actor. Now, Russian companies had always played a minor role in the Latin American petroleum industry anyway, both as a competitor and as an investor. So again, you had some more market-oriented companies like Luke Oil and, and, and Gazprom and TNK, and you had some more kind of intelligence industry tied, uh, such as um, such as Rosneft, uh, with its uh, you know former uh, you know, intelligence sector uh, boss uh, Igor Sechin. What came to happen, though, was that as uh, Chavez's policies, especially with the nationalization of the Orinoco uh, region and its heavy oil, uh, drove out many of the traditional Western investors, it really came to be uh, a combination of the Chinese um, and the Russians and for a while, to a lesser extent, the Indians that, that held things together. And so you had a position in which, uh, uh, for example, Rosneft with Igor Sechin came to put in something like $17 billion into the sector as it was falling apart. And then, of course, uh, Rosneft also um, became a, a key uh, force for refining that oil, including some of the um, capabilities that it had in, in India with places like uh, Reliance, uh, who had some of the, the few refineries in the world um, that were outside of the U.S. Gulf Coast that were able to refine that oil. And so you had uh, the development of an arms relationship. You had the development of what came to be a, a very strong oil relationship, uh, which also became a political relationship, given the role that uh, Igor Sechin had as a kind of a colleague of Vladimir Putin in helping him to, to see the value of, of Venezuela. And then you had some secondary things. Uh, so, for example, in the mining sector, there is some Russian interest in, in Venezuela's mining arc, um, both in terms of smaller companies who continue to be there working with ELN to, to this day. But um, again, as that relationship occurred, again, in that context, Venezuela was a, a willing partner uh, to Russia's need to project a threat into the hemisphere. We mentioned, for example, the first major projection of, of the threat in 2008 with the TUN-60s and, and then the the, um, the naval flotilla, and then again in 2013, as things went south for Venezuela, uh, Russia really coming to uh, step in for Venezuela to, to help get its air defense systems uh, up and working and uh, do a range of other things, including training and the protection of Maduro himself with the, the Wagner Group forces. So uh, really, it became a partner where it was a useful partner to have, uh, both in terms of the things that Russia provided, but even as Russia had limited amounts of money, basically helping each other to um, you know, join forces to project threats against uh, the United States and, and show defiance. So that's really kind of the genesis of, of how Venezuela came to be such a important ally, even though its historical trajectory with Russia was so very different than many other parts of Latin America. Now, I heard you mention the Wagner Group. For listeners who might not know what that is, could you briefly describe what exactly is the Wagner Group and how it relates to the, let's say, the total rescue package that Russia has provided to the Maduro regime to bolster its staying power in Venezuela? Sure. The uh, the Wagner Group, um, and there's a lot that's been said about the Wagner Group, which has uh, given it uh, a somewhat infamous uh, character, but uh, you, you can kind of think about it as a um, 
kind of the, the, the bad guy is Schlumberger. Um, you know, they are, you know, mercenaries. They, they bring logistics and training and, and other types of capabilities. Um, the Russians often use uh, Wagner Group personnel where they want to provide either some sort of protection or reciprocally some sort of destabilization or other things where they don't want to risk or, or for other reasons, don't want to involve the Russian military directly. So as you alluded to in Venezuela, at a time when there was some desire not to put Russian soldiers directly uh, involved in, in large numbers, especially um, at a time when there was some fear that there could be a coup against Maduro or somebody could try to attack Maduro or they could find themselves in the middle of a contested situation. The Russians uh, sent in Wagner Group personnel, um, number one, to uh, to protect Maduro, number two, to provide some uh, types of training in, in other operations around the country, um, even at the same time when they are providing some uniformed Russian personnel to do those things as well. And it's actually said, although less publicized, that um, in the interior of the country, what's known as the Orinoco Mining Arc, which really kind of extends into the Orinoco River Basin, uh, it used to be that a lot of that illegal informal mining that went on in, in, that, in that area was done by relatively unorganized criminal groups in in Venezuela, the, the so to speak, the prenas, the, pr the prison gangs, and the sindicatos. Uh, Nicolas Maduro decided that uh, he wanted to bring in more organized uh, forces to be able to uh, to work that. And, and so uh, the ELN, over a number of years, were allowed to kind of come in to displace and organize and, and keep the sindicatos in, in line. And so in that kind of criminal hierarchy, at the same time, you began to get uh, essentially uh, you know Russian business persons who were operating, had long been operating in the Colombian Llanos, uh, and uh, increasingly were, um, you know, began operating in, in this area as well in cahoots with the ELN and, and others. And so um, in their private capacity, um, you know, the Wagner Group uh, individual members were um, brought in to provide protection to those Russian, essentially criminal businessmen who, who were operating in that, in that area. So um, again, you have a range of, of different functions, but at the end of the day, they are, are one piece that is mutually reinforcing of the other things that the Russians are doing. So for example, providing uh, radars and missiles as, as a Colombian defense minister, Diego Molano, uh, pointed out in, in places like the border region on, on the Venezuelan side, places like Apure, as, as well as, of course, uh, the Russians continue to support uh, keeping their largely Russian equipment up and, and running, the, you know, the T-72 tanks, the Sukhoi 30s. Um, so basically, uh, doing routine maintenance and major maintenance on on, on their engines, uh, as well as uh, you know armored vehicles and in other things, and so in a variety of different ways. While it appears it's the Cubans that continue to have the kind of intelligence penetration to counterproof the Venezuelan army and, and others who might overthrow Maduro, um, the Russians, especially in terms of their their military interaction, dealing with people like Vladimir Putino Lopez on on the Venezuelan side provide one of the legs that helps to keep the Maduro regime uh, viable right now. So now that the audience has a better understanding of the extent to which Russia contributes to the continued survival of the Maduro regime, whether it be with military relations, with investments in Venezuela's oil sector, or even providing, of course, personal protection as a Praetorian guard via the Wagner Group to Nicolas Maduro, Let's move on to more recent developments as they relate to Ukraine. As I mentioned in the beginning of the episode, you recently had the Deputy Foreign Minister of Russia refuse to rule out any sort of enhanced Russian military presence 
that already exists in Venezuela and Cuba for that matter. This was back in January, if I'm not mistaken, and it was, he said, in response to NATO's expansion in Eastern Europe. And that was followed by a visit by the deputy prime minister to Caracas to meet with Maduro, who signed a bunch of security cooperation agreements with Russia. And this just happened to coincide with a diplomatic meeting between the U.S. and other countries that were gathering to discuss steps toward a negotiated solution to Venezuela's ongoing crisis. Because, as you know, and as we've mentioned on this podcast, most of the countries of the West, I think it's about 60 countries total worldwide at the very beginning of Venezuela's constitutional crisis, had instead recognized interim president Juan Guaido as the rightful president of Venezuela, since Maduro, of course, rigged the elections that he won, quote unquote, in 2018. But, of course, we find ourselves at this standstill, and with that context, Bearing in mind Russia's desire to maintain a high-level presence in Venezuela and the developments related to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, just how seriously should we take Russia at their word when they refuse to rule out deploying further military presence in Venezuela or when Maduro and Putin have a phone call and they pledge to strengthen the strategic partnership between one another? Well, I think uh, we'll certainly see uh, some type of uh, Venezuelan military interaction because the Russians have a strategic interest, um, and frankly, the, the Venezuelans do as well to um, you know not only show solidarity but to project some sort of military threat against the United States from its own hemisphere that would either give it something to think about uh, in terms of the escalatory dynamic or um, would potentially distract the United States to make it think about having to uh, deploy forces or, or give effort to uh, control the situation in a place like Venezuela. Having said that, um, when you look at, I think, what the Russians uh, really are willing to do and are able to do, I, I think uh, the controlling word here becomes limited. Uh, so again, first of all, if you look at the past track record, again, as we talked about before, in 2008 and again in 2013 and again in 2018-19 with a false threat about making a Russian base in Larachila Island, you know, again and again, it became apparent that the point was to make the threat. The point wasn't to actually follow through. And so um, I watched this very closely as, again, you had that carefully dropped a hint by Deputy Foreign Minister Sergei Rybakov about, well, couldn't rule out deploying something to Venezuela and you know or Cuba. It was actually picked up and, and said again a second time. Uh, and then, of course, uh, as you pointed out, you had the visit by uh, Deputy Premier uh, Yuri Borisov. And again, the very transparent staged meeting where um, I believe they repeated several times that they were really, really increasing military cooperation. And then, of course, you alluded to the, the phone call and, and the other statements, just in case any of us missed it. And so in Latin America, of course, you have a you know expression, um, you know, el perro que ladra no muerda, the, the dog that barks doesn't bite. The Russians are trying so hard to make sure that we all know about this threat. And if you look at the relative lack of details uh, that are associated with that, and frankly, if you look at also the position that Russia's in right now, I mean, it has, you know, 190,000 troops and, and probably even more that need to go to the um, you know, Ukraine operation. It is suffering crushing sanctions. I mean, the central bank has been isolated from its ability to um, to move its uh, you know its currency reserves in other parts of the world. Uh, major Russian banks have been shut out of the SWIFT system 
with ripple effects throughout the, the Russian economy. Uh, more sanctions are, are likely um, you know, going to continue to come. And so in that grave situation, the Russians probably don't have a lot of money and a lot of attention to dedicate to projecting a significant force in a place of the, the world where they really don't have the logistics sustainment possibility for that force and where they really don't entirely arguably trust or, or understand putting you know long-range missiles in the hands of a Nicolas Maduro um, you know how that could get away from them at a time when they really want to focus on calculated you know threats in, in Ukraine itself and in, in that part of the world so my sense is that the Russians are trying very hard uh, indeed it was if you look at it in the broader context of also trying to show that they're not isolated you know clearly as this crisis heated up, in November and December, that was when the invitations, for example, from Putin to um, Alberto Fernandez, the president of Argentina, were sent out. That was when the invitation to Jair Bolsonaro, who perhaps you know, stupidly in frustration with not having the Biden administration in the U.S. return his calls, decided that it would be a good opportunity for him to show his own importance by going over and talking with, with Vladimir Putin. Or, for example, the other stops you know, of the, the, the Yuri Rabikov visit, uh, including Nicaragua um, and, uh, and, and, of course, uh, you know, Cuba. But um, it'll be interesting to see just how much something the Russians can and are willing to actually dedicate to Venezuela as things uh, escalate elsewhere. And, of course, it's important to mention, uh, although I don't see it as the most important thing, but um, you know, that certainly uh, the statements of solidarity and the votes that uh, uh, Venezuela has made or, or not made, for example, the, the failure to vote uh, in the United Nations um, in the overwhelming uh, resolution in the emergency session of, of the General Assembly to condemn the, the Russian aggression. And so, you know, those things, although entirely predictable, um, you know, help Russia at least in, in small ways in you know, the court of international opinion. So uh, you can't discount that part either. It's also important to point out that Venezuela actually wasn't able to participate in that general assembly vote on Russia earlier today because Venezuela actually owes money to the United Nations. I think it's something around $40 million in unpaid dues. And because of that, it actually lost its voting rights some time ago. Otherwise, if I were a betting man, I'm very confident that Venezuela would have proudly voted against the condemnation of Russia's actions in Ukraine, which were voted overwhelmingly in favor of, I believe something like 140 something countries in favor, 35 abstaining and five against. So Venezuela, without a doubt, would have been that sixth country, obviously in very bad company. And another thing to point out, which I did earlier, I think, is that Venezuela did vote in Russia's favor in the United Nations Human Rights Council. And that serves as another friendly reminder, ladies and gentlemen, or maybe not so friendly, that Venezuela, which has been conclusively reported by the Human Rights Council of Committing Crimes Against Humanity, is in fact a sitting member of that very same council, alongside Russia itself. Russia is even presiding as the president, the current president of the UN Security Council. So. The fact that these countries, in spite of their own track records, can have a spot, such a stake in representing institutions where they basically do everything opposite of what these institutions aim to accomplish purportedly. Um, I really have no faith in the United Nations for that very reason. But if I go on about my thoughts on that, we'll have a whole other episode on our hands. So 
Let's get back on topic and point to something that you had mentioned regarding sanctions. As you know, Venezuela's oil sector has been sanctioned hard by the United States since 2019 and to a lesser degree by most of Europe and Latin America with more targeted sanctions. Yet Maduro has been able to hold on to power by heavily relying on Russia's financial system for evading sanctions. So with that in mind, how do you think that this latest round of sanctions on Russia and these much more coordinated efforts by the international community to isolate Russia are going to affect Venezuela long term? Well, that's a great question. Um, my sense is that uh, probably the immediate effects will not be significant, specifically in terms of the Russia-Venezuela relationship. Uh, as you know, the vast majority of what's left of the Russia-Venezuela relationship is essentially covert. Uh, so again, if you're talking about uh, some of the informal operations in the interior in gold mining and other types of mining, or if you're talking about, uh, for example, the um, you know the oil where you have uh, you know the Russians uh, you know oftentimes uh, you know, doing you know reflagging of tankers or, or other uh, types of subterfuge to uh, be able to to take uh, delivery on on Venezuelan oil. My understanding is that it's principally been the uh, cooperation between Venezuela and the Iranians and the Iranian uh, delivery of essentially higher grade types of, of petroleum to be used as, as dilutants so that Venezuela can can sell its oil and, and get its oil back and running again. Now, I understand that there is some you know, Russian help and, and certainly there is some Russian economic presence that's still overt. But frankly, and again, I remember when I was working this at, at the State Department, um, the quantity of, of things that were driven basically into the covert realm, into the clandestine realm, uh, because uh, you know so many parts of that overt relationship were sanctioned, especially after the U.S. got to the point where it, uh, you know, Rosneft specifically Rosneft trading was flagrantly violating U.S. Um, sanctions. That uh, you know we basically had to go after Rosneft trading, uh, which led to them essentially dismantling Rosneft trading and moving all the assets into a different firm that you know does business in other ways. And so um, the the new sanctions on Russia will have some impact on what it can do in, in Venezuela and probably weaken it. Part of the irony is that um, at the end of the day, Venezuela and Russia will both benefit in terms of petroleum by what's going on here. Um, Venezuela will benefit even though its oil production is very minimal at this point. It will benefit by the increase in the international price of oil that's already occurring. Um, Russia will also benefit from the, inter the increased price. It is uh, likely that especially Russia natural gas gas, a lot of which is, is sold, of course, uh, to Europe right now. And of course, there's the famous uh, Nord Stream uh, 2 uh, pipeline, which was, of course, canceled as announced by the Germans. But um, there also was a pipeline route going to China. And my understanding is that the Chinese, as they're doing with grains, will also be buying an increased amount of Russian oil. And so for Russia, some of it's fungible. At the end of the day, um, Russia will take a lot of hits, but they will also be able to get a certain amount of cash, probably mostly through China, um, shipping the petroleum in a different direction. The series of attempts to make Russia right now an international pariah, they're not that different from those that we saw against Venezuela back in 2019 or in years past against Belarus, which is basically another satellite state for Russia, even more so, I would say. But in this case, we've seen with the example of Venezuela that Maduro has only grown stronger in the face of isolation efforts and sanctions, which, to be fair, has been with the help of non-state actors, but 
Here you have Russia who has already been working around years of sanctions. So in their case, with companies in the private sector not wanting to do business with them, shipment restrictions and cutting most of them off of the SWIFT banking system, do you think that Putin is going to be able to survive being cut off from the international system the way that Maduro has? Or do you think instead he's going to be able to survive by seeking or leaning on alternative routes such as this network of authoritarian allies such as Venezuela, China, Cuba, Iran, etc.? Well, it's a great question. And um, probably when we talk about Putin's allies, uh, you have to distinguish between uh, those in Latin America with which uh, Russia has relatively small dealings. Again, um, Cuba, um, Venezuela, Nicaragua, the commercial dealings with Brazil and Argentina are far more important. But even then, Russia only um, purchases about $5 billion worth of goods from Latin America overall, uh, which contrasts with about $130 billion uh, purchased by, by China, just to, to throw the number out there for, for comparison, and, and of course, about a similar quantity for the United States. But um, in general, the question of Russia's ability to survive, um, on the one hand, Russia is a more complex economy than Venezuela is. You do have similar types of things. The relationship between Putin and um, his allied oligarchs uh, look a little bit like uh, what you have in, in Venezuela. But I, I would argue that the Russian economy is far, far more strained because whereas uh, Venezuela could hunker down and you know, keep, basically keep the military in their barracks and just try to crush uh, demonstrations with the, the help of the, you know, the Cuban intelligence and, and others, the Russians are basically trying to wage a very expensive and very controversial major war. And it's actually their offensive war um, in what they're doing on a daily basis to people that are not their own people, but other peoples in the heart of Europe, which I think has been very, very effective in mobilizing the international community to take actions. I mean, I remember how hard it was to try to get the European Union uh, to take actions against individual Venezuelans. You know, they were so worried about hurting individual Venezuelans, um, you know, through the, the indirect effect of sanctions, etc. Um, they're always looking for high levels of proof. But, uh, you know, you've seen to the point with, with Russia, which, you know, as they move towards non-precision weapons and as they've begun to bomb apartment complexes and things and just producing vast numbers of, of civilian casualties you know, deliberately, I mean, if we're at the point where even the traditionally pacifistic non-aligned Germans are sending anti-tank munitions, you have a level of aid against the Russians and willingness to, to sanction. And again, I think what you've seen with the swift sanctions, which are even incomplete right now, those can go much farther. The possibility for petroleum sanctions and other things. I think you're seeing a level of Russian bad behavior, which has led to a, a level of determination um, against a partner which is far more vulnerable than was the case in, in Venezuela, which, again, it was much more ambiguous and it was much more within its own border, even though you had you know, 7 million Venezuelans coming out because of what Maduro was doing. Now, having said that, I would say that there's a pretty good chance that Putin will survive. And I think it's going to depend on how the whole military conflict unravels and whether... Um, my understanding is that there is a strong Russian control of the media as well as control of protests. And so the Russians aren't seeing the type of things that the rest of the world are seeing. And that plays to Putin's advantage. But 
at the end of the day, I would say Putin is more vulnerable, but the odds are that you know he's going to pull through unless things go very very badly for Putin and you know his own you know generals or others you know, move against him in the interest of the greater Russia. But that's that's really not consistent with the, the Russian tradition, uh, even less than it is consistent for the Venezuelan tradition to, to turn on their leaders. So um, it's going to be hard for Putin to be to be ousted, which means that uh, it's very difficult to see how this ends. Another element of uncertainty that should be noted is how Russia's invasion of Ukraine directly impacts military escalation in our own hemisphere. And this is now where Colombia enters the fray. So you had Russia deploy hundreds of thousands of troops along the Ukrainian border, which of course has now turned into a full-scale invasion. And that has a distant but direct spillover effect with what's happening on the Colombia-Venezuela border, which, as you know, is rife with organized crime, with groups that are engaged in all sorts of conflict between the dissidents of the FARC that are aligned with Nicolas Maduro and those of the 10th Front, which are themselves dissidents of the dissidents. So they are fighting one another, and that fighting is being used as an excuse for Venezuela to militarize the border and to bring in both Russian military specialists and Russian-made reconnaissance drones. And at the same time, it spills over politically because there's this disinformation campaign that's being waged right now by both Maduro and the Russian state media to establish some sort of narrative that reverses the roles of Colombia and Venezuela, describing Colombia as a dictatorship and Venezuela as a democracy. I know you've been following what's been happening along the Colombia-Venezuela border, so what's your view on that? You make a number of very good points, and uh, of course, uh, to pick up on the irony that you began your uh, comments with, and uh, one of the things that you see with uh, national ethnic populations from from one territory that extend into the other throughout the world and, and throughout history is that this has commonly been a problem. But the irony was that uh, for years and years, as, as you well know, in the Colombia-Venezuela border region, um, you, you for many years you had uh, the Colombians who actually went into Venezuela when things were a lot better there. And of course, now you have the, the Venezuelans spilling over into Colombia. But uh, you know, certainly with the exception of uh, some kind of longstanding historical claims that uh, the Colombian Sea Venezuela is having on, on their territory, you can go back to uh, you know things like uh, Guaycaipuro, um, uh, and, and some of the, the issues in the um, you know kind of the, the La Guajira region, but in general, other than you know some um, you know spillover effects by um, the Venezuelan military, you you haven't you know, had anything like that. But as you pointed out, what you have had um, is this. Uh, Thing which is largely of uh, Chavez and Maduro's making that, uh, you know, first of all, the increasing not only operate allowing the, the FARC um, and later the, the ELN to uh, operate in the, the border region, but actually welcoming them into Venezuela by Hugo Chavez and later Maduro, um, first as a kind of a strategic buffer where the FARC, uh, you know, came to not only have political relationships, but uh, began to uh, be incorporated into uh, different uh, functions for the state, you know, for example, um, the way that we talked about before, that the ELN uh, operating not only in the Pure, but also throughout the, uh, the Orinoco mining arc were, were used uh, by the Maduro regime um, to help uh, keep order to their uh, their gold mining operations and the illicit profits that it, it provided for the regime. But as you also know, um, you have 
a number of, of other actors that you know of course when you had the the FARC uh, you know peace deal especially the not only a lot of the the FARC money that wasn't turned over and the FARC arms that weren't turned over were, were in Venezuela making it uh, very difficult for the FARC not to you know the FARC and the uh, the ELN can't afford to lose their uh, internal presence uh, in Venezuela and you also have a difficult situation um in which, uh, again, with Colombia's uh, reassertion of control over national territory you know, from the very beginning, the peace accords in, in Colombia, the 2016 accords, really farther pushed in the already kind of narco-oriented, um, you know, FARC dissidents that were operating in places like like Arauca on the Colombian side, who then went into Apure on on the Venezuelan side. But saying all of that is, you recognize you have an increasingly out of control situation right now because um you know if previously you had the kind of the criminal FARC elements the FARC dissidents uh the 28th front the 10th front the 33rd front uh loosely coordinated by uh, people like Gentil Duarte um and then of course in places like Pure on the Venezuelan side you had the ELN operating but uh, everyone kind of getting along um but then two things really shook things up um you know number one was when you had the um, some of the FARC leadership who had previously joined the peace accord um this is gentil duarte and jesus santrich and um who basically went back and, and expected uh that the FARC dissidents under duarte were going to basically get in line with uh, his new uh, reconstituted FARC movement that they're calling the segundo marcatalia and when that didn't happen Santrich and Ivan Marquez uh, went and, and suggested to Maduro that they could help them get the FARC dissidents in, in Duarte basically under wraps. And that went very badly. That was the operation uh, uh, just about a year ago when um, the uh, Bolivarian National Guard tried to send in special forces in, into Apure and just got decimated by um, Duarte's people who you know, knew the train, who knew the people who were heavily entrenched there and just destroyed the, the very badly prepared, badly trained Venezuelan special forces. Um, and at the end of the day, they ended up killing Santrich uh, and then, you know, of course, going after uh, Ivan Marquez, who, who was forced into hiding. Um, and then, of course, uh, as if that wasn't enough, uh, the, the ELN, who was also pro-Maduro, uh, trying to push back, uh, you know, antagonized by, by, by what was going on. And then you now have uh, Duarte and the FARC dissidents uh, beginning to um, fight increasingly with the ELN. And so what you have right now is you have a Venezuelan border region that is increasingly violent and increasingly out of control with this multidimensional conflict now between FARC dissidents, former FARC regulars of the Segundo Marcatalia, ELN, uh, Venezuelan Bolivarian National Guard, and the possibility of this just spiraling out of control, especially in an area where you have desperate Venezuelans um, who are trying to cross that border, you know, vulnerable to being you know, recruited and essentially being used as you know, cannon fodder, really just, just makes it an extremely unstable situation nested in, in human desperation. And so I, for both the Colombians and Venezuelans, I, I see this as, as very worrisome. And as you rightfully point out, Colombia has gone through so much with expanded cocaine production um, and uh, fiscal problems associated with uh, the COVID-19 pandemic um, and having to take care of, you know, the two million plus Venezuelans in their national territory and, and lots of other things that, um, you know, their current president, Ivan Duque, has become so unpopular that in Colombia's wide open elections, you could have this former you know, M-19 guerrilla, um, you know, Gustavo Petro, um, who narrowly lost during the last election. And so you're absolutely right. At the end of the day, 
if petrol comes back in pushed by all of these stresses, um, the question becomes, you know, what does that relationship between Maduro and a left-leaning government in Colombia look like? What does that mean for the FARC? What does that mean for, for the ELN? Um, you know, what does that mean for, you know, the relationship of, of the Russians uh, in, in the region? Um, and there's a lot of things to worry about, although not every bad thing that could happen probably will happen. But it certainly uh, it's something that I think has a lot of people legitimately concerned. Right. And it certainly does have the foreign ministry of Colombia concerned because they have spoken out multiple times against this increased Russian military presence inside of Venezuela. And interestingly enough, Colombia's foreign minister met with the Russian ambassador to Colombia and he promised him that none of the arms that Russia had recently given to the Maduro regime quote-unquote, in defense of the homeland against these insurgents would not end up in the hands of these dissidents themselves. And like you mentioned earlier, it's a cause for concern because in one sense, you don't know whether to take the Kremlin at their word, but with everything that we've discussed today, we do know that we should never underestimate the Kremlin. So looking ahead, Dr. Ellis, I want to get your thoughts on how the United States could respond to Russia's growing strategic engagement in Latin America. As of now, and really in past years, the United States has been relatively quiet with respect to Russia's presence in Latin America, which, as we've discussed, is established largely to the detriment of the United States, either deliberately as a nuisance or as a legitimate risk to America's national security. And the more that they escalate their presence and the more that Colombia risks becoming a possible proxy for Russia and Brazil for that matter, the more I believe that there needs to be some sort of response. So again, looking ahead, how should the United States address the challenge of Russia's engagement in Venezuela and in Latin America in general? That's a great question. Um, and uh, what the United States should do you know, has also um, a lot to do with uh, the risks of, uh, of escalation and, and how the U.S. is seen in, in other parts of, of the region. In other words, um, you know, the United States needs to do what will best strategically uh, you know, benefit its position overall, um, and, uh, and and avoid any kind of dangerous escalations, or put us in a position where we are committing to expend resources that we don't have to expend. So, I, I think in, in general terms, um, you know, right now my understanding is that uh, you know beyond the arms that we've already talked about. And you, know, you pointed out uh, that, to me, the worrisome thing about the prospect of Russian military support, which uh, Colombian Defense Minister Diego Molano alluded to, and that led to the conversation between Colombia's foreign minister and, um, and the Russian ambassador there. That, to me, indicates just how badly things are getting out of control in, you know, in places like Apure, where they feel that they actually need to, you know, bring the Russians in, in addition to the, the Cubans and, and all of the other, uh, you know, forces that are in that region. But, um, you know, certainly the United States needs to continue to provide security guarantees to partners such as Colombia, um, with the prospect that, you know, a collapsing Maduro regime uh, certainly could, as they've done or threatened to do before, move armored vehicles towards La Guajira or, or to threaten to do, uh, you know, attacks or, or raids 
through the uh, Sukhoi 30s, which can get to Bogota pretty quickly and, and do some pretty significant damage. Um, and uh, but it also applies to you know Brazil and, and certainly Guyana, where the Venezuelan claims uh, to the Esquibo region and the associated uh, oil-rich maritime area has has raised some concerns by the you know, relatively small Guyanese armed forces. So I think there's certainly a, a piece which is containment. I think there's certainly a piece which is doing everything possible to showcase the nature of, of what the Russians are, are doing uh, there. Uh, I think there's a broader uh, regional uh, context, which is to uh, tie in uh, the role of Chinese money more explicitly uh, to uh, Russian bad behavior, because, you know, frankly, the Chinese uh, want to get the credit for the benefit without being tied to that Russian bad behavior. And I think that the U.S. needs to make that link uh, together a little bit more more, more closely. But beyond that, also, of course, uh, you know, the United States uh, you know, needs to continue to observe um, what is going on better in all of these countries. I, I think uh, the idea of more effective um, and more extended security partnerships, uh, frankly, some of our ways for doing security engagement uh, under our Title X authorities um, is, is broken. It, it's too slow in addition to being uh, relatively um, uh, minimal efforts. And so I think we need to look at, at some of those things a little bit more. Um, Probably one of the biggest things, though, is Venezuela illustrates that by the time you get an anti-U.S. populist regime um, in a collapsing state with lots of criminal groups there, it's really hard to close the barn door, so to speak. Um, and so as the United States looks across the region right now, some of the populist regimes are, are pretty clear where they've um, made their bets. I mean, uh, the Ortega regime in, in Nicaragua, you know, with the 48 people that it's, it's jailed in its uh, you know, sham elections last November, certainly Cuba and, and Venezuela. But there are other areas where um, new left regimes are are either showing a combination of anti-democratic and, and other tendencies, um, or it's just not clear where they're going to go. So you know, you can look at uh, you know the struggle right now in Peru with Pedro Castillo. You can look at the question of again where Colombia, as you rightfully pointed out, goes, where Brazil goes, um, and just really the the need that countries in the region have to have U.S. support to make democracy succeed. Because really, the the best way to hold actors the advance of you know, some of the more nefarious types of engagement from Russia at bay is to make democracy and strong institutions succeed so that, um, you know, you don't have the, the door open to populist regimes that bring the Russians in in, in the first place, as, as Hugo Chavez did in the case of, of Venezuela. But again, um, you know, once they're there, it is, you know, it's exposure, it's pushback, it's containment, it, it's security guarantees to your neighbors. Because, um, you know, if you're Colombia and you look, uh, you know, to your north and you see San Andreas Island and, you know, how the Russian-backed Nicaraguans have taken over things there. If you look uh, out, uh, you know, to your maritime routes to, to Europe and in the U.S. and you see Russian-backed Cuba, if you look to um, your, your east and you see Venezuela with its uh, Russian Sukhoi 30s, etc., for Colombia, the the Russian component of its neighborhood looks really scary. And and so in those cases, it's important for the United States to also stand by its friends. But you know, really, by the time it gets to be a Venezuela-like situation, at that point, you've already lost 90% of the game. So I would emphasize both us continuing to you know fight the fight where we can make a big difference with limited effort now, as well as um, contain the damage that the Russians can do in, in a place like Venezuela. I couldn't agree more. And to borrow a quote from one of your articles that I'm going to actually put in the show notes for everyone to read, because 
it really is an excellent assessment of the multiple non-state actors in Venezuela. You write, if the U.S. fails to resist overt Russian threats to regional security in Latin America, then it's not clear where the U.S. can draw the line to defend its own security and that of its neighbors. And make no mistake, ladies and gentlemen, these Russian threats to regional security in Latin America, they are real. Take Venezuela as a case study for that. So hopefully that is a wake-up call, certainly now with the tragedy of Ukraine fresh in our minds and the struggle of the Ukrainian people in our hearts. So with that, Dr. Ellis, I want to thank you so much for being on the program today. I'm confident that our listeners will have learned a thing or two, not just about the foundations of Venezuela's ties to Russia, but more importantly, how Vladimir Putin's aggression serves as a reminder of the importance of doing more to support everyone fighting for democracy around the world. So if our listeners want to get in touch with you or read more of your work, of which there are over 300 on the region alone, where can our listeners find you? Sure, absolutely, Raphael. It, it's been a real pleasure to be on the show, so thank you for having me. Uh, for anyone who is interested in engaging with me on my occasional publications, my email address is r, is in Robert, underscore Evan, spelled E-V-A-N, underscore Ellis, E-L-L-I-S, at hotmail.com. And if you're interested, uh, you can also find me on, on LinkedIn um, you know, um, as R. Evan Ellis. And so I would uh, invite any of you who, who want to uh, join my, my list to just let me know. Um, I typically publish uh, four or five things uh, per month. And so I welcome the opportunity to engage with uh, your listeners. And uh, again, Venezuela is a, a test case that deserves more attention. And it's symptomatic of a hemisphere with which uh, we are deeply connected by ties of, of family as well as commerce and, and geography. And uh, you know we've seen in the United States that whether it's drugs or immigration or organized crime or other things, when things go well in the region, they go well for us. When things go badly in the region, it becomes domestic, not just foreign policy dilemmas for us. And so we have a strong vested interest in getting this right. And um, also my very best to both the Venezuelans uh, struggling right now um, to restore democracy to their country as well as uh, our brave and valiant uh, Ukrainian friends who are you know, fighting and dying right now for their country against uh, the, the Russian aggression. Amen to that. Slava Ukraini. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of the State of Venezuela podcast. We hope you enjoyed listening to the story of Venezuela as much as we enjoyed sharing it. Make sure you subscribe on Spotify and Apple Podcasts to listen to other episodes and follow us on all social media platforms for more engaging content. Don't forget to share the podcast with friends, family, or anyone abroad. Reach out to us with any suggestions for future episodes at stateofvenezuela at gmail.com or just to say hello. We'd love to hear from you. Until then, we'll see you in the next one.